If you'll make your way to that passage there in, in 1 Corinthians that Kyra read for us. We continue our travel through this series, Truth Shaped, this summer, and just identifying some core values in, in a sense of what, is it, what does it look like to be a, a Christian shaped by the truth? What, is it, what does it mean in a culture that... that really doesn't understand why we stand for what we do. And, and a lot of that comes out of this idea that, that we haven't been consistent on how we've lived out that life. That if we're honest, a lot of the misinterpretation and misunderstanding of culture based on Christianity is, is a lot of our part. Now there's, there's deception and there's other things in that, but we have to understand that if we're going to be people and agents to expand the kingdom of God in a culture that doesn't understand it, we have to live a life that's shaped by the truth and the truth alone. Because that's the only constant that we find. That if we want to engage culture on a way and a level in which they understand, then we need to be shaped by the truth. It doesn't need to be by our preferences, by what we've always known, but it needs to be shaped by the truth of God given to us, inspired by the Spirit, written down so that we can have it. And that's the point of the summer that we were looking at this. We have one more um, week next week in Truth Shaped, and then after that we're going to start our fall series, which is on the book of James. And, um, and so we're going to, it's kind of coming to an end. It seems weird that it's coming to an end. One, because summer's over, which means school's about to start, which means I'm about to have to start working again and all that. So it's kind of this odd time, but today we, we come to a topic of worship. This, this idea of why, and maybe, you've ever, maybe you haven't ever thought of it, but I think about it all the time. I look back when I was a kid. I always went to church. My parents made me go, and, but I never knew why. Have you ever wondered, why do we gather as a group of people to worship? What, what is the point of that? And then if you understand, oh, well, we're going to proclaim the glory and stuff like that, what's the purpose of it, though? What does it mean? Because it has to have more of an effect on the individual and then the corporate body with us Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. So, so what is the point of that? And that's what we're going to go with today. That's where we're going to find ourselves traveling is what does worship look like? What does truth-shaped worship look like? When we look at the truth that God's given us, how does that shape our worship as, as our lives, both how it relates to us individually and then those outside of the, the body of Christ? So if you will, just pray with me real quick. We'll ask the, the Spirit to guide us through this today. Father God, we... We come before you, we open your truth, God, and we just pray that we're submissive to your spirit. God, I just pray that, that what I proclaim would be your truth. God, that, that it would be your word proclaimed to bring glory to your name, to expand your kingdom, that we and I would decrease so that you could increase, God. And we admit that we need your spirit's help and guidance to understand your truth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. And so when we're looking at this idea of worship and what that looks like, it's interesting. And I'll be honest, this was probably the hardest sermon I've prepared all summer. It just, for some reason, every time I opened it up, it was like nothing. Like, you got to be kidding me. And I knew scripture, I knew the scripture, because if it was up to me, I would have picked a far easier scripture, a far easier passage than what Paul's talking about here. Right? It's just, it, there's, there's a lot of baggage that we've brought with a passage like this. And so it was, it was, it was hard, but what's amazing is that the, the things sometimes that are the most difficult end up being the most beautiful. 
That, that once you pass through that, that it's this amazing thing in life. And that's how I feel today, that, that it's such an amazing thing to see how worship shapes our lives so that then other people can experience that. Because how we worship determines what people see us as. How we live our lives through an act of worship, gathering here and then everywhere, determines how people see us. And so when we're looking at worship, and we look at this passage today, and we see those verses that, that Kyra read, and you look at it and you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. It's like he's saying all these different things. So what I want to do first is we're going to go through, we're, not going, to, we're going to end where we started, in a sense. We're going to end with those verses that she just read, and we're going to get some context. What does he mean when he gets to that point in, in 1 Corinthians 14, those, those last verses, 20 through 25? And so we're going to kind of take a journey through 1 Corinthians 14, understand what Paul's talking about in context of this letter, understanding that we're not the original recipients, that this was written to a church, to people. And so we're going to look at that, and then by the end of it, I think that we're going to have a, a beautiful picture of what worship looks like. And so that's kind of where we're going. So if you will, turn over to the first of 1 Corinthians 14. And what we see, the first thing in this is that our truth-shaped worship should be edifying. If we look at these verses again, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And so right there from the beginning, we have to remember that this, uh, this, Paul didn't write this chapter and verse. Paul didn't sit there and think, okay, well, there's chapter 14. It was, we, that, I was added later to ease reading and understanding that. So if we want to look at what's happening here, we have to realize what came before it. What came before it, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? He's talking about how love does everything. Love conquers all. And then if you look at the last verse in 13, it says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So if we see this as a continuation of what then love looks like as we start to worship. As we begin to worship, because that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about prophecy and tongues, and I know that's a lot of these. Wait a second, we don't do that anymore, right? What is, what is he talking about here? How does that apply? But we see it, we have to see it through this idea that worship is then to be edifying so that it builds people up. It builds the individual. So we could say that the first truth-shaped worship is teaching for the whole church, but it's empowering for the individual. It's teaching that's good for the entire church, but it empowers each individual as we live our different lives on mission to bring glory to his name. And we see that in that first verse. We need to pursue love. So if we're going to live our lives as worship out, we're going to be pursuing love. But then corporately, we also need to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. We're going to earnestly seek those. It's this conviction, this intense conviction to seek those things of the Spirit. And he goes into talking tongues, which that's, we need to see that in the context that it's at. There's many more spiritual gifts. And what we see happening is that this church in 1 Corinthians most likely was focusing on that instead of everything else. And so now he's using that to show, no, here's what worship needs to look like. He's not saying that we only need to desire that. It's the gifts of the Spirit, especially that you may prophesy. Okay? Especially that you may prophesy. So what is, what is he talking about there? How does that relate to us? Because I'm not a prophet standing here prophesying. But what we see in that is it's an act of teaching. It's an act of teaching. If we're going to especially prophesy, that relates to us today, is that we're going to give a representative declaration of what God's saying. We're going to teach the truth. And as such, it's going to build people up. It's going to 
edify the church. And that's what you see when he keeps reading. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters the mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their building up encouragement and consolation. So we see that, that while he's talking here, that if you're going to focus on speaking in tongues, like this church we can say was, it's only for God. But if you're going to prophesy, if you're going to teach, then what? It's going to be up building. It's going to be edifying to the body. And so I want to look at, I want to spend some time just real quick to look at the difference in that. Because on one side he's talking, you got to deal with both. Even though a lot of times if you've had experience with churches and speaking tongues, it's weird. If we're, if we're honest, it's odd because you don't understand it, right? So what is he talking about here? Things that we need to understand from this, specifically verse two, what you see in there is that one is that tongues are only for God. To be edifying tongues needs interpretation. That's what he's saying right here in verse 2. No one understands them. So if we're not going to understand them, then there has to be interpretation for it to be edifying. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. You don't, you don't know what's being said. We don't see that. But what really the big question, if, if you're like me and you always think about stuff, and like, okay, you want to, the behind the scene, like, let's look behind the curtains. Really, it's not that he's talking about tongues. It's just, what does that actually mean, right? What does that look like? What is that? Because most of the time, again, I'm trying. I'm being honest today. Not that I'm, not that I'm normally not. Don't listen. That's not what I meant. But it's just that's just what I think. I'm like, okay, so what does that mean? Because you, if if we're honest, isn't it the weird stuff that pops in your mind when you see speaking in tongues, right? Isn't it those people that you'd rather that you think probably do worse for the witness than anything else, right? And so what is he talking about here? I don't think he's talking about that random just random muttering stuff. I think he's talking about languages. I think he's talking about human languages here, and, and there's three reasons why I think that. If you look in verse 10 and 11, he says that there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of a language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. And so I'm, I'm assuming then that when he's talking about tongues in the first few verses, when he's talking about in 10 and 11, he's talking about the same thing. Or he's just completely switched. And there's no, there's no reading in that that all of a sudden now he's talking about something else. And, and, and another reason, if you want to get into the language, the, the word tongue there is the normal word for spoken language. And, and that's the, the reason we can look at that and say, okay, well, Paul's meaning language is because Paul makes up words all the time. If you look at some of the other letters that Paul writes, he uses words that no one else does, which brings in a question to a lot of his authorship, because they're like, Paul wouldn't say that. Well, he just does. So why would he use the same language here, the normal word for language? So I think that's what he's talking about. Like he's literally saying, these are languages. And then the other thing that people bring into is the last part. Look at the last part of verse 2. It says, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. We're like, oh, well, it's mysteries. We have to understand that mysteries to Paul, he's talking about stuff that hasn't been learned by other generations, not that no one knows. He talks to Ephesians about mysteries of God. He's talking about this hasn't been revealed yet. It's not this mystery that no one can understand. It's just that they haven't known up to this point, which would imply language. You don't know. And then you, we get a lot of people talking about this and understanding that, oh, Acts 2, everyone spoke in tongues. Well, they either did or it was a miracle of hearing. We don't know. 
Okay? And so what he's saying here, when we look at all this, I think he's talking about languages. And he's saying, don't worry about all that other stuff. Teach. Teach. Why? So it's edifying. That's where we get the, on the other side, that's where we get prophecy. We have tongues over here. No one understands. has to be interpreted, be edifying. And then we have prophecy. Verse 3. On the other hand, this is the other side now, the one who prophesies speak to the people for their upbuilding encouragement. So we have needs interpretation for anyone to understand it. Anyone can understand it. It's edifying. It's useful for that. And so when we look at truth-shaped worship, when we look at edifying worship, we, need, we see that it's not focused on the individual. If it's focused on the individual, then it's not going to be edifying for the body. It's not going to be building up the people because it's one person involved. And so it's a result of a mature Christian attitude, which we'll talk about later in verse 20, this understanding that worship's not about us. It's not about an individual experience, although there is an individual experience. That's not the point. The point is that edifying worship builds people up. It's built upon the entire church. That's why we say that, it, that it, it's teaching for the whole church, yet empowering for the individual. Everyone can understand. It's edifying. It's building up the people. There's individual convictions involved in that, but it's not individual in its nature. That's why we gather if it wasn't about this corporate gathering, then we're not here today. Then it doesn't matter. But the church throughout history has gathered. Why? Because there's something about individuals coming together to worship that impacts everyone, that makes it edifying. And that's what Paul's saying here. Is that, no, let's strive for teaching. Desire those gifts. Understand those gifts. Want those gifts. But be so more in prophecy, in teaching those around you teaching and you can it's not just me you can teach a lot about people worshiping in how you worship how you walk in how you worship determines a huge amount of how people see worship that doesn't mean that we should rely on other people but we can teach everyone can teach how to worship by how they worship and that then is when it becomes edifying we also see, if you flip over to verse 10, we talked about it in languages. We see that it's also compassionate. So this truth-shaped worship's edifying. That edifying means that it's compassionate. Compassionate means it thinks of other people. It's putting other people out there. And that's where we get in verse 10 and 11 again. It says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, nuns without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. But if we keep going, verse 12. So with yourselves, since you're eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. It's understanding. When you look at those three verses together, we see this idea that the truth-shaped worship is compassionate because it's understanding and building up other people. It's realizing that there's differences. That's why he talks in, in 10, 11 about language, that languages are meant to be understood. There's none without meaning. Everyone understands it. I always think of it, if you've ever traveled to another country that doesn't speak English, you understand this, right? Everything has a meaning, but you don't know it. You don't know it. It always makes me think of the time when I got to go to Berlin with Grace Bible Church. We got into the airport. We landed. First time I've ever been out of the U.S. land in Berlin, and we're walking out, and there's this craziness happening in the airport. We find our guy, Jan. He's a cool guy, right? I found him because he's wearing a cowboy hat. I don't know if he did that for me because we're Texan or not, but he's there. And all of a sudden, he just starts walking. And we're like, I have no idea. Literally just got off the plane. 
And we're walking, there's all this craziness. I'm like, where are we going? He's like, we got to go out here. I'm like, why is all these people there? Well, the airport was on lockdown. So we land in Berlin to a locked down airport because they'd found a bag outside unattended. Right? In the world we live in, then you freak out about stuff like that. Well, Jan t- we, he takes us to this weird place. We get out of the airport. So I'm immediately thinking, who is this guy that's leading us out of a lockdown airport? My definition of lockdown is not the same, apparently. Because we get out and we're like, hey, here's, he's like, here, catch the bus quick. I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, we're lugging around a big, just trying to get in. And then we're sitting on the bus and I'm like, okay, that's crazy. And then there's like four girls sitting across from us, like teenage girls. And they're all talking. I took German in college, so I'm trying to pick up some context. Like, oh. And then he looks at me and he's like, if you're trying to figure out what they're saying, I don't know. I'm like, What? You got a guy that just led me out of a lockdown airport in Germany. People are speaking German, and you don't know what they're saying? What's the deal? Well, it turns out, it comes out that they were Swiss. Swiss speaks different German than, you know, it, I equate it to us not being able to understand Cajuns. That's why we need, that's why I need subtitles, right? Not, I don't know if any of you are, but I didn't mean that. I just, right? That's why all those shows need subtitles, right? You don't know what they're saying. And it's the same thing here. Language has a meaning. But if you don't know it, you don't know what it is. It just sounds, that's a great thing. It doesn't matter. It could be a weird sounding language like German or a great, like French, that's all fluent. It's, you know, it's a good language. It still doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it sounds good. You don't know the meaning, then it has no point. And so what we see in this idea is that without those meaning, it, nothing happens. It, you might as well not even talk. And so when we relate that to worship, we have to understand that there are those from outside the church that should be drawn in. If we're living our life on mission, people should be drawn together with us to worship to see what's happening. But if they walk in and they don't understand anything that's happening, they might as well not come. It has to be compassionate in the sense that we think of other people. That's that's a gospel application to worship. We have to put our preferences and our understanding aside so that people might hear what we already know. That's where verse 12 is so critical. So with yourself since you're eager for the manifestation, manifestation of the Spirit. So he's not saying don't worry about the Spirit. He's saying no, have a Spirit-impacted life, but strive to excel in building up the church. Be compassionate understanding that some people don't understand what's happening. Even people that are new believers They haven't grown up in church. They don't know why we do what we do. That's why we try to always have stuff. That's why I have a slide that says adoration at the first. This is what we're doing. That's why I have confession and assurance on a slide. So I say, hey, this is what we're talking about. When we have this time of prayer, you can see this is what we mean. We want to always be interpreting our worship language so that we're compassionate and caring for others that don't understand it. Because then, if you have the meaning... You're not a foreigner, and the speaker's not a foreigner to you. It's all been useful from building up. Then it can be edifying, but it has to be compassionate first. Compassion, it's for everyone. It's only possibly compassion and worship if the gospel's transformed your life. Otherwise, it's all about you. Because only in the gospel do we realize that we're basically selfish, only worried about us. And so until the gospel under, captivates our lives and we see other people, we're not going to care what people think when they walk in. We're not going to be compassionate in our worship. And then that worship's not going to be shaped by the truth. That's what we see. There's doubtless different languages. There's many ways to worship. We need to be compassionate and understand that people don't understand why we do what we do. 
So we need to tell them. We need to translate that for them. There has to be some compassion in that. And we have to teach in that. John uh, Chrysostom was the Archbishop of Can- Constantinople. And, and he was, the, the height of his ministry and writing was about 380, 390. And so, lived a while ago. And he was talking about this passage right here. And he said, why so far from discouraging, one ought to recommend to teach it. So don't just tell them not to do it. Tell them to teach it. And that's what Paul does here, right? He says, I'm a foreigner to the speaker. The speaker's a foreigner to me. But I should teach them how to do it. I should teach them. And that's what we should do. Because compassion is going to allow us to teach people. And then when we're compassionate in our worship, then our worship's going to be edifying because we're building people up. We're showing that. And then we continue to move forward. That's what it has to be. And then again... When we get down to those verses that, that Kyra read for us, we, kinda, we get the, the harder part of this, and it's a little different than compassion, but it's kind of the same. But it's that our worship should be understandable. Um, and since I've made the slide, I've thought maybe accessible would have been a better word to put there. So read accessible, not understandable. So um, I, just, I think it has a better meaning for that. So when we look at those, let's just read those five verses because they flow really, where, really well together. It says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the laws written by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for believers, but for, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that they're out of their minds? But if I'll prophesy and an unbeliever enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And when we first look at that, and when I first looked at that passage, I was thinking, I have no idea what that means about how worship is today. How does that fit with what we do today? How, how is that going to shape our worship by the truth that God inspired Paul to write, so we can't throw it out. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful. So how does this shape our worship? It shows us that it has to be accessible. It has to be understandable. And it's a little different than compassionate because it's, this is what people perceive. This is not how we're teaching them. This is what they see. And so what you see here in these verses is Paul's using the, the Corinthians, their, their focus on speaking in tongues, they're spoken on these, uses it against them and says, look, if you're doing this, then your worship's actually standing as a sign for people's condemnation. That's what we see here. So you see, verse 20 is, is where we get caught up, I think, in, in the church today. But, but do not be children in your thinking, be infants and evil, but in your thinking be mature. You've, if you've been in church, you've always heard that, that we need to come to faith as a child, right? Jesus even said, let the little children come to me. But the problem is, is that we don't then translate that, that we're supposed to grow. That's what Paul's talking about here, is that our worship, we don't worship as children. Worship is mature, maturing people. Just think about it. Kids, they accept everything out of faith, right? My granddad abused that on me all the time, in that when we would do something, he would tell me to do something just to see if I'd do it. And every time I did it, we'd be drilling through some metal, building something. He's like, here, I've got to change the bit, hold the bit. After he just drew, drilled through metal, and I'm like, oh, it's hot. And he's like, yeah, I know. 
Like, who does that, right? It's a kid. They just accept it. They just accept it. But did I do it again? No. I grew up. But if I wouldn't have, then I would have done it for myself. And that's what kids do, right? You teach them, they just accept things and then immediately go to selfishness, right? They immediately turn into self. They're going to use their, what they've gained by faith, just accept it. They use it for their own gain. And so do we with worship. We approach it and then we don't grow up. We become selfish in it. And those that are outside don't understand anything, but it doesn't matter because it's about me. That's my preference. Doesn't matter. They should get it. We we gotta quit expecting unbelievers to act like believers and understand worship like believers. They can't. It has to be acceptable or accessible. We have to be mature in our worship, understanding that people don't get it. And if they don't get it, and that it's not accessible, then they're gonna do exactly what verse 23 says. Right? They're gonna say, Well, they are they not out of their minds? They have no clue what's going on. And so they're not gonna come back. And if they're not going to come back, are they going to hear the gospel that they're dead and their trespasses and sin? So inaccessible worship right here based on this stands a, a sign of condemnation because they're not going to understand that. Our worship has to be understandable, and for that to happen, we have to be humbled. And for us to be humbled, we have to have the gospel in our life. Because only gospel says that you've screwed it up, there's nothing you could do, yet he sent his son. So if we're going to have accessible worship, we're going to have to be humbled. And there's no more humbling fact than that you could do nothing to save yourself. Absolutely nothing. So when we look at our lives, how do we apply that to what we do here? So to think about it, you just have to ask questions. Are we welcoming? It's an odd hallway to walk in. If we just take us for a second here, it's a weird hallway to walk in especially once school starts and there's bulletin boards and who knows what they're going to put up in the hallway, right? Last year we had a bunch of minions on the side of the wall and all this stuff. It looks weird. So are we welcoming when that happens? Because that's the start. From the minute someone walks through the door, that's the start. Are we going to be accessible to them in how we worship everything that we do or not? Are we hospitable? Do we actually, are we actually interested in people's lives? See, I, don't, I didn't have the privilege to walk in the door for the first time and experience it. I was already in the door. So I don't know what it's like to walk through that door, never experiencing what watershed is. is it, are we hospitable? Are we welcoming? That's what I think about all the time. Are we, what we do, is it pointing to the gospel? That's what I think about all the time. That's what I talk to AJ about all the time. What we do and sing and experience and preach all has to point to one thing, and that's him. And if people don't understand how that does that, then we're failing at our job. We're not being shaped by the truth. Are we encouraging? Do we actually care about people's lives? Not to be judgmental, not to say that we're better because I'm glad I'm not in that situation, but to truly live life with someone. I mean, how can we pray for you in this time? Because all that's worship. All that in shows us if we're accessible to people that are non-believers that when they come in they're going to understand what worship is because if it's not that way we might as well just stop because then we're the reason they're not going to see their sin because they don't see any difference so if you want to look at this as a way of summary just kind of conclusion look at this these last five verses what truth-shaped worship is okay it needs to be accessible so that it can be compassionate, so that it can be edifying. But if it's not, 
It's going to drive people away. Verse 23, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, which we can say, that's a, that's a gift to the Spirit. So it's not that God wasn't involved in that worship, but if everyone does that, will not the outsiders, unbelievers, enter, say they're out of their minds? Now, we might not be speaking other languages, but if how we worship doesn't translate to unbelievers, then this is ridiculous. Why would I wake up early on Sunday? That's my day to sleep in. Why should I come back? I'm no different than those people. They just do some odd gathering that's really outdated. So if it's not, it's going to send people out. And as it sends people out, it's going to condemn them in a sense that they don't understand their sin. That's verse 22. Thus the signs are, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. And we get that from verse 21. That's a quote from Isaiah 28. I'll read directly. It's Isaiah 28, 11. It says, For by people of strange lips and with foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. Okay? That chapter in Isaiah 28 is talking about the judgment of Jerusalem. So God's saying, I'm going to judge you by someone else's thing. This case, that case was the Syrians. They didn't speak that language, but God said, I'm going to judge them. And that's where the message is going to come from. So then that message, what Paul's saying here, is that message is not of one of salvation, but of condemnation. So then if we're not accessible, people are going to see that. That's why it's a sign not for believers, but unbelievers. It's a sign of condemnation on unbelievers because they don't understand it. They don't get it. But if we are accessible, and if we understand the gospel, we're going to seek for people to repent, right? Isn't that the point of the gospel is that God can build his kingdom by the news that, that salvation is here? That's the best part. It's, it's not, it doesn't always end bad. I know it seems like that a lot of times. Paul always finishes it with a good, and that's what he does in 24 and 25. But if all prophesy, if all teach, if we all teach, if we're compassionate, we're edifying, and an unbeliever outsider enters, he's convicted by all and is called to account by all. So the worship then serves as a sign for repentance because it's accessible. It's understandable. They know, okay, what's the difference? Because we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then what? 25, best thing to finish on you can do. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. The sin of his heart, the condition of his heart is disclosed. So what? Falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And that's what I pray that our worship is. It's an experience for people to understand that we worship a living God and that he is among us and then it points people to the condition of their hearts. Prior to the gospel, they're dead in their trespasses and sin. And I pray that they would understand through how we worship our Lord, that that's offered to them as well. And when that happens, we'll truly have an edifying, compassionate, accessible, truth-shaped worship that all can experience and that lives will change. The gospel will be proclaimed and Jesus will be glorified. Let's pray.